0: If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Out of Limits of Inner Truth radio show, LimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Today, we are going to take a look at the trajectory of freedom in the U.S. and the world, as well as the financial markets. Our featured guest is a deep thinker. He's somebody whose columns and articles I've been reading for years. Very thankful he's on our show. Let us begin. It is a great joy to welcome to our show Charles Hugh Smith. He's a proprietor of a site called OfToMinds.com. It's terrific. I've read many of his articles that usually appear in LouRockwell.com, and that is a website I highly recommend everyone go to if you want to read about the latest developments in freedom. Mr. Smith, welcome to our show. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. One thing I have found very interesting about your articles is that you put so much thought into them. You're putting like three or four steps ahead. And I often find that some of the articles that you've written in January and February, like they come true. So you're very perceptive. What do you see happening in the world right now, particularly the U.S.? And where do you see things headed for the next six months?
1: Well, that's uh, that's a great question, Ryan. <clears throat> and um, I, I'm not a, a market per, uh, prognosticator. Like I'm not going to predict what's going to happen in any one particular market um, because you know nobody knows. But I think uh, I think we're in um, a cyclical his- historical point, and there's a lot of other um, historians and Sociologists who've written about this this idea of there's cycles, you know, that last decades or, um, and one of them, of course, is the the fourth turning, the the, the idea that there's a, a a major crisis and inflection point in American history every eighty years, every four generations, roughly, and um, that that there's a book called the Fourth Turning, and, yep. and many yeah, you're probably familiar. Yeah, with
0: I'm very familiar with it, and I was just it was kind of strange about that. Because I remember reading a lot of alternative media sites that they were all saying, OK, well, based on what's happening in the fourth turning, there's no way that, that Trump's going to lose. And they, they were really focused on the election and they were utilizing that as a, as a shift. And I think I remember one of the interviews with the author and he's saying that, OK, on well, the new fourth turning, there's a return to the institutions getting stronger. So I, I'm really – I have a hard time engaging that or perceiving that. What do you – what's your perception on that compared to what's happening now what's in the fourth turning?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, these kinds of crises are very hard to predict and, and and how they unfold. So, like, for instance, from my point of view, I'm wondering if what we get in the fourth turning isn't um, like a cultural revolution. You know, in other words, America's equivalent to the cultural revolution in China, which upended, you know, everything for like a decade in China. Right. Um and, and China and the U.S. Are, are different. So, you know, it's not going to play out in, in, in the same way. But I, I think what one of the one of the things I'm kind of anticipating in the next six months and in fact, the next four or five years is those groups which have been denied a political voice in the United States. The, well, they're, they're, you know, you can't suppress people. Forever and and they're not and, and expect them to never respond right they, that they they have a right to a voice too and if you deny that voice in the political system where their votes don't count essentially um, or the candidates that they'd like to vote for never get through the process of, of actually getting on the ballot then they're gonna they're gonna express their um, dissent uh, culturally you know like they're not gonna bother you know trying to create a third party or some kind of political thing it's going to play out culturally. And I see that the look at the political polarization we have. And, um, that's, I think a sign of like a cultural disorder, you know, it's, it, it, it's not just confined to politics. And so I, I think that's one possibility of how things unfold. And, um, I'll, I'll mention another historian that you, you, you know, you're familiar with and Many of your listeners are like Peter Turchin. He's a guy that, that sees cycles of about 50 years. And, um, I've written a lot about him, and he was kind of considered a marginal character, right? And he wrote this uh, article in, in uh, the Nature uh, magazine, like a science magazine, in 2010. And he said, hey, look, at we're going to have a crisis in 2020. And everybody said, oh, yeah, right, Mr. Historian. And then when it happened, then everyone goes, oh, so maybe we should oh, take a look should at should this take guy. A look. Yeah. So um, his thing is there's three conditions that, that cause – profound social disorder that that lead to uprisings, revolts, political, you know, revolutions, et cetera. One is um, wage stagnation. You know, I just wrote about that today. Everybody knows the wages have gone nowhere in America except for the top, you know, 5% for decades, right? Um, Like I, I said in my post today, hey, I made 12 bucks an hour in 1986, and now people are still making 12 bucks an hour. And that's considered an okay wage. And it's all like, yeah, but the cost of, of living and, and trying to have a family Relations or buy a house. Ridiculous. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're up threefold, fivefold, tenfold, whatever. So you've got wage stagnation. Then you've got overproduction of parasitic elites. That's what he calls, um, you know, the, the people who aren't really growing any food or creating any value. Um, they're just kind of living off of, you know, the financial churn or political, you know. Um, scams or monopolies, you know, this kind of thing. And um, so it, that is, uh, we've, we're overproducing these parasitic elites. I mean, there's a ton of people that expect to get some kind of high-paying, secure job in corporate America or Wall Street or the government, and and um, but based on their credentials, right? Like, well, I have a master's degree. Well, everybody's pursued that. So now there's, 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 you know, 10 people with a master's degree for every you know, job that 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 people think was was their right, right? Um, so that that's I think clear. And then the third point was a, a decay of of government finances. You know, it's like well, you know, the money supply went from four and a half trillion to eighteen trillion in a few months, or you know, uh, thanks to the Federal Reserve, you know, creating money out of thin air, and the government's borrowing at two trillion a year, and, and there's no end in sight to that. And everybody thinks, well, this is consequence-free. We can print as many trillions as we want. But, you know, history says that's not the case. And so all three of Turchin's, you know, conditions have been met in full. So that's why he predicted social disorder. And so how do you correct these problems? You know, uh, that's on everybody's mind, right? Well, my my theory is the status quo, you know, whatever you want to call it, the powers that be, etc., You know, it's incapable of solving these problems because it is itself the problem. And of course, readers of Lou Rockwell understand this already.
0: When it comes to the government printing all this money, I mean, I I, I love listening to Gerald Salenti and Peter Schiff and then there's Ron Paul and Jim Rogers are all saying it's going to end badly. Even Robert Kiyosaki saying, look, if you're not stocking up on gold and silver, Bitcoin at this point, you're, you're not doing something right. But then... I also read Martin Armstrong's blog, and Martin's saying that we're not going to have this collapse. And then I listened; he said it's just the U.S. has never had its currency canceled. Then I'm reading Jim Rickards, who's saying, "Well, the reason why we haven't had that high for inflation is because uh, there's no velocity right now; like there's no velocity in the monetary supply." So I, I don't know what's going to happen. I, maybe they're going to be able to keep this going on longer because it seems like in Japan their debt to GDP ratio is something like over 200 percent. So just from your perspective alone on this, if things continue the way they are, if people can borrow without any kind of consequences, if the U.S. can continue to rack up and say another $10 trillion in debt over the course of the 10 years, what will that fundamentally do to the society? Will we, will we have uh, a more intense Orwellian dystopian reality where we have universal basic income, where the people uh, don't have any motivation to better themselves? Because, you know, there's no consequences for these irrational, uh, poor decisions based on behalf of the government and private businesses. So what is your take on that?
1: Well, Ryan, I, I really appreciate you bringing up that um, an insightful question, because what you're talking about is um, a topic that I'm really interested in, which is what's the connection between our money system and our incentives, you know, it, to to work hard and get ahead, you know, like the sort of our social uh, uh and cultural uh, values, right? Because they, they are connected, right? We re, we all respond to incentives, and so if the incentives for getting ahead um, have have been lost or or decayed, then then you do lose um, the drive for innovation, competition, um, really creating wealth, right? Because you know people have to work hard to create value. It's not some sort of easy thing where you just get to print money out of thin air and you've actually created wealth, right? All you've created is a claim on wealth, but you haven't created any wealth. And that's, that's the underlying problem with the U S economy is the federal reserve keeps printing trillions and giving it to financiers and corporations to buy back their own shares. And and this kind of financial gimmickry, they're not creating any wealth, right? I mean, (laughs) and so how can a society prosper if you're not creating any value and wealth, all you're doing is just printing money. And, and, and so I think you raise a very good point about Japan because uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Japan, um, has its own currency, the yen, right? And, and so it's a, it's considered a global currency, but it's only about 4% of the, uh, as a reserve currency, people <clears throat> around the world don't really hold a lot of yen. And then Japan, um, and I visited there, I studied uh, Japanese uh, language and culture and the economy in college, you know, many years ago, but nonetheless, I, I think I'm a fairly well-informed observer, is it's a self-contained economy, right? It does export a lot, but the people there are continuing to buy these bonds that pay nothing, right? In other words, they're buying their government debt, as, as almost as sort of like because there's no other choice and out of loyalty, right? Like, well, that's what you do is you buy a bond that pays a tenth of one percent. And so they're able to sort of self-fund their their absurd uh, debt machine, right? But the U.S., it's not the same. We're like 60% of, of the reserve currency is, is U.S. dollars. And we are huge importers, as we all know, right? We import 400, 600, 800 billion dollars a, a year. and So we're basically... Saying to the world, we're going to print uh, this money that's backed by nothing, um, and you're going to take it, and you're going to send us oil, uh, you know, uh, semiconductors, cars. You're going to send us, you know, trillions of dollars worth of stuff, and we're going to hand you this this uh, paper that we printed. <laughs> and so that Japan is actually an exporter, so it's it's like we don't have the luxury because we're not going to we're not going to be able to support our own our own debt because and so we have to keep our currency uh, valuable to the rest of the world. And if we fail to do so, then um, it's bad for us and it's bad for the world economy because everybody else in the world needs to export their surplus production to us. Right. That, that's the sort of game that globalization has created for the last 50 years is if you have a surplus of, of semiconductors or cars or whatever, ship it to the US and dump it on us and we'll buy it right and then corporate americas played that game by offshoring all the jobs and productivity and and production facilities overseas because it's like well this this is a this we can save money we can make more profit right and that's how corporate americas profits have risen to 2.4 trillion like 15% of the entire gdp is corporate profits well how did they do it well they shipped all the factories to places where, that, you know, the people make 10 bucks a, um, a, a day instead of, you know, 20 an hour. So um, it's created this sort of um, – sort of to summarize, it's created a lot of instability beneath the surface. And so all that's been kind of papered over, but these fundamental realities have not been fixed or changed in decades. You know, we're still a huge importer. We still print money, and that's what we trade for all this um, – Imported goods and um, other countries depend still on on selling us all of their excess productivity uh, production you know that's that's what they're living on. Yeah. And Peter so Schiff says that's the-
0: going to change. Peter chef's saying that that'll, that'll eventually change.
1: Oh yeah, it uh, has to
0: yeah. and also a so cycle of empires too Pardon just the empires will will change that you know Gerald Solante's been talking one of his bigger predictions this year is that he said everything's going to move to China. I think Martin Armstrong said that too. Talente comes right out and says the reason why everything's going to move to China is because China's in the business of business and the U.S. is in the business of war.
1: (laughs) That's that's um, great. Well, there's there's a lot to be said for that, but um, I think that, you know, uh, from my perspective, and I also have studied China kind of intensely and and been there a couple of times and have friends there, so I'm not claiming I'm an expert. I don't read Mandarin, etc. But um, again, I think if you kind of dig beneath the surface, then you you start realizing China has its own challenges, right? Um, and 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 not to say that that there's not geopolitical rivalry or whatever, but I guess what I'm saying is China's also not yet ready to um, become an importer. You know, in other words, they they need to export to the world too, so they're dependent on this system, um, just as as the U.S. is only you know, dependent in in on the other side of the trade. And, you know, China's got the same demographic issues as Europe and the U.S., right? That um, they don't, um, uh, their, their baby boom is huge. The baby boom is retiring and there's not enough workers in their system to support that, that gigantic demographic of retirees. So um, I don't think there's, there's, there's clear sailing for any, um, <laughs> any nation. And, um, you know, on top of all this, Um, we have, you know, fiat currencies are still the standard, right? In other words, people are talking about maybe China will, uh, back their, their yuan with gold and all that. And, um, that may be, that may be the case and people will, will, um, be, uh, going in that direction or they'll go to a cryptocurrency backed by scarcity. But, you know, all those things are tricky, you know, and this is where people have to try to look beyond, um, the superficial uh, value and and look beneath the surface of these currency ideas because it's like well once you uh, make your currency convertible to gold, well then you you have a problem if you're an importer if you're, if you're importing a great amount of, of goods and services because guess what all the people getting your money are going to convert that to gold, and all the gold you have will be shipped overseas to pay um, the importers. And that's what happened to the U.S., and, and that's why the U.S. went off the gold standard is it was running a deficit, a trade deficit, and all of our gold was going overseas. And um, so, it. so it's like, well, you know, if you're going to run, if you're going to, you know, convert your currency to gold, then pretty soon you're not going to have any gold. And so um, so they, they didn't want to face that reality, you know. And I, and I, I think just to kind of emphasize this point. The rest of the world is just as dependent on this US dollar, you know, dominance, because they need a market to sell their stuff to. And, and there's no other market available, right? Like, you know, in other words, China exports to Europe. But if the US stopped importing, you know, trillions of dollars worth of stuff from Europe and Japan and, and Asia and China, it's like those those countries don't have any other equivalent market to go to. Jeez,
0: maybe this will go on for a long period of time. If you look at the American public and you see, you've observed them for a long time, how would you collectively describe them uh, from, You know, from a spiritual perspective, from a mental health perspective? Are they weak enough to succumb to tyranny? Are they weak enough to, uh, you know, allow this to continue? Are they strong enough? Is there a spark within them to pull back, to stand up, and to once again maybe be an example for other people in the world?
1: Well, Ryan, that's a terrific question.
0: And obviously, you
1: you know, you have – you know, you're, you're very well informed. You listen to a lot of really smart people and that's how we all learn by the way. Right. I mean, you know, I've, I've, I'm learning from all the other smart people posting content on, on the internet and thank goodness we have that still. Right. Because if you were yes. stuck with, the, if you were stuck with the mainstream media, forget about you'd, it, <laughs> you'd, you'd just be getting dumber every day. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but to your point, um, it, it is it is extremely worrisome because from one perspective is the, the powers that be have so much power now, you know, that they've concentrated so much political and economic power that it's it's really dangerous to um, dissent. In other words, like if you um, if you are considered a threat then you can be doxxed, you know, like online. You can be, um, they can reveal, you know, where you live and where you go and um, and um, they can undermine your, 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 uh, your livelihood, right? Um, they can uh, shadow ban you and I myself have been shadow banned, you know, like I can look at, I can show you my server traffic and it fell off a cliff um, and, and my Facebook traffic vanished to near zero from thousands to, you know, a few dozen. I mean, and it's so it's real, you know, and, and if they shadow ban you, they can take away your livelihood if you're if you're actually making a living online. Right. And, and you can have your product line banned from Amazon or, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And so these threats are real, you know, and then on, in the real world, well, you know, you can be um, arrested for all kinds of things. Your house can be broken into by authorities under some pretense. Um, and, and this is, um, I think this is a, a degradation of civil liberties. It's already well advanced, you know, in other words, like say 50 years ago, if you wanted to be part of the, um, the anti-war movement, um, against the Vietnam uh, war, or if you were, um, in the civil rights movement or something, yeah, you could get your head thumped, you know, if you went out in, in a group, um, and you could be tear gassed and stuff. But now I think the level of control or, or um, th- threat to your livelihood and, and, your, and your safety is just a lot higher. So that's part of why people appear to be risk averse is the risks are now higher, you know, <laughs> that let's yeah, be honest. Crazy. And, yeah. And so um, it, to organize against this kind of power is, is um, difficult because um, it's such an asymmetric thing, that the citizenry has so little power, like this. It, um, and so I think one of the things I think is going to happen, and I think we already are seeing it, is people are opting out. And by by what I mean by that is they're saying, look, it, I'm not going to sacrifice myself by trying to fight the machine, um, because I've seen people around me, you know, just lose that battle, right? And so I'm just going to drop out of the system. I'm going to go build a micro house on a little lot somewhere and, you know, I'll, I'll find a way to kind of scrape by. Um, and, um, and that's how I'm going to, that's how I'm going to do it, you know? And so uh, I don't know if you're hearing of this from other people, but I'm actually seeing it on the ground, you know, that there's a lot of younger people who are saying, you know, I'm, I'm done with trying to fight this battle, you know? So I just built this little, you know, two or 300 square foot house. And, um, I'm going to raise my family that way and um and and you know this was what happened in the western roman empire before it, its final collapses is people were paying higher taxes um they were getting drafted to fight these wars of of you know choice on the borders and it was like you know what let's just leave let's go join a monastery or let's just fade into the countryside you know because it's just it's not worth the struggle anymore so and i think if you see that happening in america then you go, Well, um, where is that going to go? And, and then what what I see happening is well, the authorities that need tax revenues, then they're going to raise the taxes on whoever's left. And then the pressure on those people is going to increase and then they're going to start thinking, Wow, maybe all those people that dropped out, maybe they they were smart, maybe I need to drop out too. maybe I'll sell my house and and uh, get out of Dodge, right. Um, and I'm, I'm hearing that myself frankly, you know, that people who are like physicians, you know, making what most people think is a lot of money. Well, they have huge, you know, student loans and they the cost of doing their business just keeps skyrocketing. And so they're really not doing that great, despite the fact you say, oh, well, they're making three hundred thousand or something. It's all like, yeah, but, you know, scrape away all their expenses and taxes and student loans and everything. And it's like it's, it's not worth it for a lot of them. And so a lot of them are trying to get out of, of being in practice. As an example, so what I, happens to American society is people just opt out.
0: I see. I'm also seeing a, a massive migration as well, I mean, when it comes to, if you look at Florida and Texas, some of these these are two states where they're they didn't lock down, and a lot of people are trying to move. And I've been trying to get to Florida for a while. And a, a house that would that was going for five twenty five is now selling for 800000 in the course of, a, of like three months. And I, I don't think it's just – I think people are actually uh, migrating to places where they're their freedom. I, I do wonder if we're seeing a, a, a soon-to-be breakdown in the U.S. where you're going to have states that are just going to be based on people who like to live together, which I think is great. I'd, I'd love to be around people that, that want to leave other people alone and want to have freedom So if we had, I think, four or five other political parties that were viable, I do wonder if freedom could improve or if maybe we'll just need to have an initial breakup of the states. Do you foresee a breakup of the United States? Do you think that would actually be the best solution for freedom?
1: Well, that's another great uh, topic. And again, I I don't claim any particular expertise in this, but – I think you're onto something, and I think that there's um, a variety of ways that this sort of breakup can occur. Um, and, and a lot of people are speculating about an, an actual political division, like um, a, a sort of secession, right, where there's, um, the states break up into various sort of camps uh, or regional uh, states. And, and that's possible, um, but I think it's, it's also possible that, per your comment about migration, that people are going to go to where they feel that, that there's a community that that's um, that they can be comfortable in. Right. And community is like a huge form of capital. And I think this is one of the things I talk about that I think people have forgotten or or may not uh, recognize is that if you're in a community where you can contribute, not just as a leech, right. But as somebody who's part of the community and, and helping your neighbors and, the community and in, in, in small ways, right? I mean it's all about sharing the excess or surplus that you have and and um, helping people uh, around you. And um, this is a form of capital. You know in other words you can be you know you, you don't have to be rich in terms of financial capital. If you're rich in social capital then and, and uh, people care about you and you're creating value in your community, that's worth a lot, right? And that's really when push comes to shove, and you're talking about the potential for hyperinflation, or a massive deflation or some kind of financial shock, you can always count on the people that that you care about, and that they care about you, right? And And, and that's really the value that I think a lot of people are trying to migrate to, you know, and so to your point, what may happen is, The political structure may look exactly the same. You know, there's 50 states and then they, you know, there's Congress and all that stuff. But what may happen is all that higher level federal government stuff may just no longer apply to the to the local conditions. It may be that Congress is passing laws and all that stuff. But but guess what? There's nobody left to enforce all these regulations because, you know, there's not enough money to pay people to overregulate everything, you know. And, um, and and this is also a, a lesson of history, you know, is that when when the, the e- economic system starts breaking down in terms of, of the regular person being able to uh, have a prosperous life, then what happens is the, the the government goes on as if it's still in charge, but it's it's only in charge of a few things and the, and real life is is dominated by the local considerations. So maybe you get people going to states where the value system aligns with their values and then they become the dominant political voice, right? Then things go their way. (laughs) And then the other, the people on the other end of the spectrum, they'll move to some state, um, that, that, uh, aligns with their values and then they'll, they'll get to live with the consequences of their values. And so that would be informal. You know what I mean? It would be like nothing would change politically, but it would, it would be like a, uh, it would be a huge sociological change that had that wasn't visible politically. And um, and this would be, a, I think, a positive thing, but it would definitely continue the polarization you're talking about. Right. And um, so and and yet that would be, to me, a positive movement, because you know what? People should have the right to move where they want to go. And if they become a majority, then they have a right to, you know, and, uh, vote for the government that aligns with their values. And so. It it may be a polarizing thing, but that's not necessarily bad.
0: I mean, I think people who listen to our show go to Lou Rockwell and go to these other sites. I think they want to go someplace where they're free, where they don't have to worry about someone infringing upon them. I feel like there's uh, Peter Schiff. They had this awesome quote where he said, "We used to be a uh, a nation of free, independent-minded thinkers, and now we're a nation of freeloaders." And I think he he nailed it. And I just want to be around people who are very pro-freedom. Mr. Charles Hugh Smith, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. And you can learn more about Charles by going to his website, of2minds.com. His articles, uh, I think, are terrific. They're on lewrockwell.com. And uh, Charles, thank you so much for all your contributions.
1: Well, thank you, Ryan. I thank you for asking such terrific questions.
0: Thank you. All right, we got it. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. I can't wait to get this up. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I hope you. I, I didn't ramble on no, too much. No, this is great. This is well, you.
1: very insightful. Yeah. Well, you ask me questions that I'm excited about. I think that's really what people sh- – we should be talking about. It's like what's going to happen and it may not turn out to be you know, like everybody else expects, right? Like maybe mm-hmm. – but it, there's going to be change. There's going to be big changes and so it's, it's exciting and interesting to discuss how it could – Unfold,
0: you know. So, do the people are afraid of it I don't know. I mean, I maybe you, I don't know if you agree or disagree, but I, I feel like we're more more mentally prepared for this stuff than people who are just, um, you know, on in the system because I don't think they I, I, they think this is going to go on forever. Like they don't think they, they can anticipate something like this happening. They don't foresee it happening.
1: No, so, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, I, I'm in Hawaii, where I am, I, um, I, I was born in California, but I went to high school and college in, in Hawaii. And I, I had my first business here I was a, I was a building contractor for a, all the 80s. And so within my wife, and I moved to California, because it's, um, it was just more opportunities back then. And now, but I guess my point is, Hawaii is considered a liberal state progressive, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But it's a very community-minded place and so just just i just wanted to share that with you is you can be in a place that's so-called progressive but it like you said what matters is are people going to leave you alone and are they going to take care of you know the people around them and if they do then it's less you know it's like it's um yeah so even in a progressive so-called progressive state if the communities are strong then It'll it'll be okay, but if it's like just some sort of fragmented big city with a bunch of freeloaders, yeah, I mean you
0: got to get the hell out of those places. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I used to love New York, and I it, it's dead. It's, it's completely, dead. It's completely, I'm in North Carolina right now. I'm trying to get to um, trying to get to Florida, and then I, I talked to two of my friends who were preppers. Like, don't ever go to Florida. I'm like, but it's nice, but they're free. I'm like, don't go to Florida. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in
1: North Carolina. Yep. I
0: mean. Uh, I just talked to Max Kaiser and Stacy,
1: uh, and they're they're in North Carolina and they like it. And what they, they a were part just, of the end? You know, I'm not really sure. They're kind of cagey about you know where they are, um, but um, I think someplace you know over in the coastal band, and um, and uh, they said, yeah, you know, like the town that we're closest to, they're they're, they're building the. the The development is just amazing, you know, like they're anticipating the population going from 5,000 to 50,000. And I have people – I have correspondents in South Carolina too and they're saying, oh, yeah, all those people from Ohio are messing everything up. (laughs) It's just just like the way Californians are screwing up Oregon, Washington, up. I think
0: they're screwing up North Carolina too. North Carolina used to be a red state. I was here eight years ago. It was a red state. Now it's it's going blue and I, I live in a place called Wake County but they call it Woke County. And, oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't. And I I just. I, I mean, my thing is, I just want to be left alone. I don't want to. I don't care what anyone does. And that's why I, I like Larkin. Uh, Larkin Rose, he talks about saying that there are he's, he's got this really weird philosophy, Charles. He thinks that things are actually getting better. He, he says that we're on the path for people withdrawing their consent for authority, and that will ultimately change everything. And I, I, I find it hard, but I listen to his stuff, and I think he makes a lot of sense. But he says we're on that path. So I don't know.
1: I. I, I think that's right. I mean, there is going to be it is going to be better. But what was the, what was the, the the person's name again?
0: Oh, Larkin Rose. Larkin, Larkin
1: Rose. Larkin I'm not familiar with.
0: Him. Okay, he is um, voluntarist. He's also an anarchist, and his big thing is he said the most dangerous superstition is the belief in authority. So, I told him, I, so you're you like the Doctor Phil of of freedom movement because when I watch, I, I check out the the Corbett Report, and I go on the Rockwell. And it seems like things are getting awful. Like when I read Paul uh, Craig Roberts stuff, I think Paul Craig Roberts articles are like the most depressing articles. And then John Whitehead's got the most depressing articles about how (laughs) tyrannical the government's getting like, damn. And then Larkin's out there saying, well, when the government's own enforcers are refusing to comply, that's when it's over. He said, if you see these people and and their own goons are not complying with the tyranny, then they have no – then that's when it's over. And he really is talking – he's saying the underlying theme is that because certain states like blue states are locking down hard and the red states are experiencing freedom, he said the tyrants are training the people to uh, basically disobey. So I mean it's kind of interesting because I listened to it and I feel like I need to – I feel like I need some positive perspective on it. But he really puts a lot of clarity. If you go to our website, com, the last interview we did was with Larkin and that was about a 40-minute interview. And he goes into those philosophies and I ask him about vaccine passports and I ask him about all this stuff. And he, he said that they were going to fail with the vaccine passports and they only put stuff out that they think that they can get away with. So
1: Yeah. No, I I hadn't heard of him before, but I totally I'm 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 with it. I think he's yeah. that's absolutely <laughs> right. Is that like like I was saying in our little little yeah. program? Like history says, yeah, the government's up there passing all these regulations, but there's nobody left to enforce it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: I don't know what'll happen. Uh, I'm going to send you my email r- real quick. I think you have it, but can you please send me um a- another picture of you because the ones we have online they're all they're kind of smaller. So okay. It's just a headshot So I wanted to do that. We'll, we'll get this up right away. Okay. All right. Uh, Charles, thank you so much. It was great speaking with you. I really enjoyed our time.
1: Well, thank you so much for the invitation. And I, I nope. hope I didn't
0: ramble too no, much. No, it was great. It was great.
1: Edit out whatever you got to edit out. <laughs> well, dude, Charles, thank
0: you. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Okay. Thanks, yeah. Ryan.
0: Bye-bye. Love and beers. Take care and thank you so much for listening.